Welcome to In the Oil Patch, presented by Shale Magazine, broadcasting from the Oilfield Expert Studios. Oilfield Experts, where you get the right products right now. In the Oil Patch is where, together, we explore topics that affect us all in oil, gas, business, and in your community. Every week, your host, Kim Bellotto, will visit with the movers and shakers in this fast-paced industry. You'll hear from industry experts, elected officials, and many more right here on In the Oil Patch. Welcome to In the Oil Patch Radio Show. I'm your host, Kim Bellotto, and today we have a great show lined up for you. We'll be joined in studio by Nate Clark, who is a principal with Deloitte Consulting LLP, Rachel Goyden, who is Managing Director for Deloitte Consulting LLP, and Jeffrey Can, who is Retired Partner with Deloitte in Canada. But first, I'd like to tell you about the latest issue of Shell Magazine, in which the feature story for this issue is former Secretary of Interior Ryan Zinke. He really has a great story. I encourage you to go to shellmag.com and learn all about him. If you remember, he was actually with the Trump administration. There was a lot of regulation that was placed on the oil and gas industry prior to President Trump being elected. He was the man who literally did a lot of undoing of the regulation, not to mention his time that he served in the military and Congress. Very, very, very interesting man. Go to shellmag.com and read his article. Very, very interesting. I'd also like to tell you about an upcoming mixer that we will be at. It is the Shale and San Antonio Pipeliner Mixer scheduled for December 3rd in Corpus Christi, Texas. For more information for this mix bow, please visit shellmag.com. That's S-H-A-L-E-M-A-G.com. You can email Joyce, J-O-Y-C-E, at shellmag.com for more information. This mix bow is the first we're having. It is with the midstream section in oil and gas, and that's why it's with San Antonio Pipeliners Association and us, of course, Get your tickets now. If you want to be an exhibitor, I encourage you to click on the link at shellmeg.com and purchase now. This will be a sold-out event. Once again, it's scheduled for December 3rd at the Omni Hotel in Corpus Christi. It'll begin at about 6 p.m., It will have a lot of opportunities to network. We will have great prizes. They will be giving away a smoker as well. So I encourage you for more information, come join us at that mixer set for December the 3rd at the Omni Hotel in Corpus Christi. For more information, visit shellmag.com. Again, for more information, visit shellmag.com. And now it's time to bring on the editor of Shell Magazine, David Blackman. David, welcome to this week's show. Hey, it's another beautiful day in Texas. It sure is. Let's jump into a lot of things happening again all over the place, all over the state and all over the world pertaining to energy. First things first, Chris Tomlin is a reporter at the Houston Chronicle, and he wrote a piece this week which basically contends that ExxonMobil knew about climate change as early as 1981. Is this accurate? And if so, how would that impact ongoing companies if they were held in litigation in some way for climate change, if it's a positive thing for New York and they come, they're successful with this litigation against ExxonMobil? I mean, how does that work? Like, how do you yeah. see into the future something well, that you're doing? <laughs> so you don't. I mean, and, and unfortunately, I mean, this is such a ridiculous, uh, misleading, excuse me, allegation in Tomlinson's piece, he just throws in this random sentence that says, without any support in the piece itself at all, that says Exxon scientists have accepted climate change as a fact since the mid-80s. And he's got a link to an article in the UK Guardian, which is a, a tabloid rag over in London, 
in which it, it, it quotes a, a memo written by a fellow, a scientist, who worked for Exxon for about 20 years in the 90s and into the first decade of, of this century. Uh, he, this guy wrote a memo just sometime in the last few years in which he says randomly that Exxon first got interested in climate change in 1981 because it was about to develop a big gas, natural gas field off of Indonesia, or it was looking into that possibility. And they discovered in 1981, when this guy wasn't even working for Exxon at the time, um, that the natural gas stream in this big gas field had a lot of carbon dioxide in it. Um, and so they knew that there were two approaches to dealing with carbon dioxide in a natural gas well. You either vent it into the atmosphere, which is actually still allowed uh, in the United States and other parts of the world. Yeah. Or, or you spend a little more money and you re-inject it back into the formation, uh, which is done in a lot of places. And, you know, it just depends on what the government is willing to permit. From that, this guy concludes that in 1981, eight years before the scientific community ever started even talking about carbon dioxide causing climate climate change, that ExxonMobil somehow knew that a gas field in Indonesia was going to cause climate change. It is the most absurd leap of logic that I've ever seen in my life. I don't know how the people at ExxonMobil deal with this kind of nonsense, uh, but it's just absurd. It's ridiculous. It's, it's, there's no foundation for that allegation, and, and frankly, for the entire lawsuit up in New York State that's been brought against ExxonMobil, they're trying to contend that Exxon knew, somehow knew about climate change in the late 1950s, 30 years well, you know, I before think any of this started coming up in the scientific community. It's, it's ridiculous. It, it's going to be problematic if they actually side against ExxonMobil. I mean, it, it, it is a, a definite problem for, I think, every single person on the planet when you start looking at people are going to be held or companies are going to be held accountable for things that happened in the past in this way. It's the starting point of something much bigger and something much scarier. Let me make one more point and then we can go on. Yes. In 1981, everybody needs to remember in 1981, the conventional wisdom about climate change and what is he even called that then? Was yeah, it was global about, warming. Well, no, in 1981, we were supposedly going into the next ice age. Nobody started talking about global warming until, until Al Gore, right? Okay, okay. You know, yeah, Al Gore started, well, James Hansen uh, and Al Gore started talking about global warming in 1988, 89 time frame. In 81, Paul Ehrlich was running around claiming we were about to go into the next ice age. So the thought that an oil company somehow had all this knowledge, the secret knowledge that nobody else in the scientific community had is just absurd it's ridiculous i but, think it'll be interesting to see how they're going to prove it it's, yeah, it's yeah. probably more the point and it's probably not it's just an exercise to see how do they litigate against oil companies here in the future on these myths and um, yeah. maybe this is the first floating balloon for that we had a protest at ut austin early this uh, week the author alex epstein we've had him on the show in the past he wrote a wonderful book called the moral case for fossil fuels and he spoke at this event. Tell me what happened there. In fact, I'm, I've written a piece for our next issue of Shell Magazine about this called The Most Ironic Protest in, in World History. 
here you had a group of University of Texas students organized by a professor of geological sciences at the University of Texas, mm. protesting an author who is there to speak about the positive benefits to our society from fossil fuels. And there are thousands of positive benefits for, from oil and gas in particular. Um, the irony there is that every one of those students' tuitions are heavily subsidized by the Permanent University Fund, which is funded by oil and gas royalties from production in the Permian Basin. That's right. Hundreds of millions of dollars a year. The University of Texas has the second largest university endowment in the United States, behind only Harvard, because of the Permanent University Fund, which is funded by oil and gas revenues. And the teacher who organized that protest, her salary is heavily subsidized by the Permanent University Fund. So the thought that these people are there protesting Alex Epstein, who's just a wonderful writer and a great speaker, just struck me as, as overwhelmingly ironic and absurd. And just you have to wonder if any of them actually know anything about how their tuition is subsidized uh, by the PUF. It's just insanity to me. I have no words to put that because you're absolutely right. I mean, like, if you don't understand where your job comes from and where all of the resources are coming from, the majority of it, and you're out here protesting, and it's just a train wreck of <laughs> ignorance. <laughs> well, that's Sorry. what I think it mainly is, is a train wreck of ignorance, yeah. Yes. Yeah. So the EIA reported America's exporting of liquefied natural gas doubled during the first half of this year. What an amazing story for the industry. Finally, something positive to leave the ending of our segment on. Talk to us about why this is important, the benefit of LNG exports for us all. Yeah, for everybody. I, you know, uh, the, the more exports we're able to, to send out of this country, you know, to other parts of the world, it, it, it just helps our economy immensely. Uh, reducing our trade deficit. Uh, you know, we have a place for all this incredibly abundant natural gas to go. Uh, one of our big problems, frankly, for the industry here in the United States is that we have so much natural gas, we're just overwhelmed with it and not enough ways to use it here in this country. So the opening up of those LNG export facilities at Chenier and in Corpus Christi, Freeport LNG here, you know, on the Texas and Louisiana Gulf Coast, it's just a tremendous benefit to everybody, and it, it you know boosts our economy. Yes, it improves our standard of living, and uh, frankly, it, it improves the climate. I mean, we we have carbon uh, emissions in our country have fallen to nineteen ninety two levels now. Nineteen ninety two levels. Nineteen ninety two. We we have the United States has has reduced its uh, emissions far more than any other country on the face of the earth mainly because we're retiring old coal plants and replacing them with natural gas plants. And so it's, it's just a benefit economically, environmentally, and, you know, it's just, uh, you know, it's good for everybody. So it's, it's just a, one of the great developments in the industry over the last, you know, five or six years. Well, with that, it's the ending of our segment. Thank you for joining us this week, and I look forward to having you back on next week, which, of course, we'll be talking more energy and all things that encompass. And, hey, if you want to write in and ask a question of David Blackman or myself, please email us the questions at radio at shellmag.com. Again, that's radio at shellmag.com. Hi, folks. Alvin Bailey here. Did you know Agreco is proud to sponsor In the Oil Patch Radio Show? Agreco has served Texas oil fields for over 10 years, supporting producers with temporary power to get their product to market. 
When utility power is not available, Agreco is your reliable alternative. They service everything from pump jacks with a single 200 kilowatt unit to massive gas processing facilities requiring 50 megawatts or more. Agreco is your dedicated engineering partner for diesel and natural gas generators as well as battery power solutions. Call Agreco today at 1-800-AGRECO. That's 1-800-A-G-G-R-E-K-O. Any business can benefit from advertising to the oil and gas industry, but it's really important to partner with a marketing company that has a proven track record with this growing industry. Shale Oil and Gas Business Magazine is the one-stop shop that'll keep you in front of the customers that you need to grow your business. So let's start growing your business in Texas. Email us, info at shalemag.com. Again, that's info at shale, S-H-A-L-E, mag, M-A-G, dot com. Or you can call us, 210-240-7188. Again, that's 210-240-7188. And now it's time to welcome on our guests who are in studio today. We have Nate Clark. He is a principal at Deloitte Consulting, LLP. We also have Rachel Goyden, who is managing director for Deloitte Consulting. And we also are joined in studio by Jeffrey Can, semi-retired partner. <laughs> semi-retired, yes. Deloitte Canada. So before we get started, I just kind of want to give you guys an opportunity to introduce yourselves to us. So Nate, we'll start with you. I do a lot, but it comes under a simple heading, which is I help our clients with uh, the digitization trend that's been happening in oil, gas, and chemicals. So I spend a lot of time with our clients helping them uh, both strategically in terms of where they should spend their time and their their capital and their talent, uh, and also how do you uh, actually execute those projects efficiently. And then I have the pleasure of working with the great people at Deloitte in terms of increasing our own capabilities. Jeffrey, tell us a little bit about, so you're semi-retired, but there's so much going on that it's kind of hard to ever really retire, right? Because if <laughs> you've got true. expertise, you want to give them. So what are you doing with Deloitte? Well, I, at the, uh, my, my story with Deloitte is uh, I'd spent 30 years with the firm, actually, including 20 years as a partner. And I, I left the firm in May of last year. And at the time, I was, uh, similar to Nate, uh, working at the intersection of this wave of digital change and its impact principally on the oil and gas industry. And, and these days, I, uh, aside from working with the book that uh, Rachel and I have co-authored, uh, I help oil and gas companies, uh, again, uh, address this, this wave of change by running seminars and uh, training courses with them. I write a weekly article series on the impact of digital and oil and gas. I have a podcast ser- uh, series that, uh, where I, I interview tech entrepreneurs as well as oil and gas companies to learn what they're up to all to try and help the oil and gas industry cope with with this wave of change. We left the best for last. Rachel, tell us a little bit about what you're doing at Deloitte as a managing partner. So um, I've been at Deloitte for about 20 years, and unlike uh, my esteemed colleagues here who spent really their entire careers in the oil and gas field, I spent about 10 years or so in, in the field. And I especially became interested in innovation and some of the trends that happen and are happening in oil and gas around innovation about six or seven years ago and started doing some research and practicing in that area with clients. And that eventually led to um, or quickly led to uh, digitization and how that was changing the, the uh, operations in the world of oil and gas. So that's how I got into this mix. Um, and I, then I uh, connected with Jeffrey and some of the work that I had been doing leading uh, digital projects and digital clients in oil and gas and, and connected and we co-authored this book. Is it true that digital in oil and gas has so much more potential than other industries. I'm, I'm interested to understand, like, how fast is oil and gas? Are they leading? My thought would be they're leading the pack. So I would say there's there's a ton of potential in oil and gas uh, for digital technologies to change the way that we work and the way that work is done. We're, we're definitely not leading the pack. 
Um, but you would see m- much more B2C, consumer-faced industries that are leading the pack in terms of digital. You see how the digital is, has impacted our personal lives. It just hasn't made it to our work lives yet in, in oil and gas. And there's a couple reasons for that. Um, one is, you know, we, we, we see uh, consumerism happening first. Uh, uh, the second is uh, oil and gas operations, of course, are 24-7. We have concerns about safety and the catastrophic failures that can happen if there is a, if, if there's a problem with the system. And you don't have that on the, on the consumer side. So that's one of the reasons why it's taken longer uh, for digital to take hold. Because I have a whole bunch of things in mind on like safety and, and terrorist mm-hmm. attacks. Maybe we can't talk on that, but I think that they do have to move in a way a lot safer. Yes. So if, you're, if you're rolling out a, an, an upgrade to an app for a, a shopping app or a fitness app or, uh, you know, a map, you know, what's the worst that can happen? Right. But if it's a refinery or something even larger, mm-hmm. this could really have serious implications. Jeffrey, what is your thoughts on that? Well, what I like to do is actually decompose the oil and gas industry into its various components. And uh, so uh, the upstream industry uh, will react to digital innovation very differently from the downstream. Uh, it, we are, I was just in uh, Rachel's car this morning and, you know, the car, new cars are festooned with technology. There's, there's sensors everywhere and, and the next wave of uh, d- uh, cars coming to us will be uh, effectively digital devices in their own right. Okay. Uh, they'll be connected to networks and they talk to each other, the high level of autonomy uh, and so forth. So the consumer end of oil and gas is going to feel the shift uh, in digital, but it might not come from the uh, you know the, the uh, safety angle it might come more from a uh, consumer transportation angle and so you know in the consumer uh, realm where where people interact with petroleum products today is in the gas station well when was the last time the gas station experience that you we've all had actually went through any material change I mean the last wave of change for gas stations that I I recall was pay at the pumps. That's a very long time ago. Right. Uh, so Because remember, uh, you used to have to go in and pay at the stores. And some of yeah, the older that, no, people, which I'm not giving away Well, in age. some states today, <laughs> you still have to pay inside, right? It's uh, the, the, some states, uh, even fueling your own car is still considered illegal. Uh, so, but so at the consumer end, the 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 change is going to show up in the retail uh, uh, retail sites. And it's already showing up, and it will show up at, at speed once we start shifting over to different kinds of transportation. Yeah, there's so much technology going on, and so much changes, but yet there's also this place where I think the energy industry looks and says we need to be very careful before we start flipping these switches, and we're completely digital. And what do you give your clients as far as consulting on? Do they know when they're ready to go? I mean, have they run through all the checks and balances? Is there somewhere they're reassured, like you're safe to go, flip that switch and go? It's a, it's a complicated question because, like, I'll uh, touch uh, – I like how Jeffrey touched on that question in terms of decomposing it. So if we take a look at it, for, let's start with the fundamental that certainly all the clients I work with have safety and environmental responsibility as a predominant uh, guiding principle for their operations. And that's upstream, downstream, midstream, and chemicals companies. And um, that's a very healthy thing, but uh, you've touched on the technology aspects of digital chem – I think another important thing is the cultural aspects, and that's the speed and the ability to experiment and move forward very quickly. So if you take a look at things, if you're, me- if you're making an alteration or an improvement to a, proce- to a key process control element of something in a refinery or in terms of a, a, a high-pressure pipeline or anything like that, those are the areas where there's a safety culture, there should be a safety culture, and there should be an optimization for caring, uh, care and resilience. And so we don't want to alter that. However, there are other vast areas of the business which are, don't have those level of constraints. Those are things such as doing the analytics on how things are performing, uh, how uh, talent is distributed throughout the organization. Those are areas that are similar to how Rachel was discussing uh, it, that uh, the fault tolerance is far higher. 
So how do you set up a culture within a company where you're doing a lot of experimentation and rapid innovation in the areas that are, are more fault tolerant while maintaining the safety culture in the areas that are less so? Uh, now, right. that is to say, not, not to eliminate at all, that there are opportunities for improvement in those uh, high, high importance areas. And in fact, sometimes far more so. Right. Well, and that's what I was thinking is, okay, so there's probably maybe in the up or in the mid that they have to have, be a lot more sensitive. I'd say the interesting thing is everybody's vulnerable, right? right. So uh, it's the, the interesting thing is I did have an experience with a CIO of a client uh, for a major midstream uh, company, and he had explained all the investments they had put into place in terms of uh, cybersecurity simulation, uh, simulated attacks, uh, what they would call red team type attacks, uh, doing a lot of uh, software upgrades in terms of making sure things where they need to be, and also, most importantly, employee training, because in a lot of cases, the least secure part of the network is the human that's in the loop. Right, right. The interesting and, and insightful part of the story that I heard was that after all that analysis, they still had a vulnerability, which if about 15 things went wrong right away, they could, someone could do something improper to the pipeline. Or they could go to the local rental car company, rent a pickup truck, and drive into the pipeline and cause a lot more damage for yeah. a couple hundred dollars in a couple of minutes. Right. So the other thing that's important are that although we, we spend a lot of time thinking about digital, it's still cultural. It's still an integration of physical security and the fundamentals of how we're operating. Well, when we come back from break, there are so many different conferences. And a lot of them, like Sierra Week or uh, OTC, you see a lot of technology being rolled out. I want to get your opinion on how much of that is futuristic and how much of that is now today. But we do have to take a quick break. You're listening to an Oil Patch Radio Show, and we'll be right back. And we're back. You're listening to in the Old Patch Radio Show. Our guest today is Deloitte. Uh, we have Nate and Jeffrey and Rachel in, and we're talking everything pertaining to digitalization in the oil and gas industry from, of course, our experts at Deloitte. Before the break, we were talking about the industry as a whole moving into oil and gas and the digitalization part of it. It's a very, very huge pie we're talking about. There's so many different areas, right? You have upstream, midstream, and downstream. There's a lot of conferences here in Houston that, you know, we attend or we're asked to attend. And I just want your thoughts before we jump back onto topic. But it's amazing to me when I go and I start looking at the different Angora pods or things that are going on at these conferences, how much of it is really today now being used and how much of it is futuristic that they're on their way. The Sarah Week, for instance, I saw so much new technology, it was shocking to me to see how fast and where the energy industry is going and how if the millennials understood how high tech it was, they would want to jump into this area for work. Rachel, tell me your opinion on how much of it is today, right now, of the conferences you see. It's a great question. I think there's a lot of technology that can be applied today. Uh, It's a matter of We've got two different groups that are developing technology. We have technologists who are trying to understand how they can apply their technology in the oil and gas space. And then we have oil and gas companies who understand the issues and are trying to to develop the best technology to address those issues. So I think that the challenge that we see is uh, there are many up-and-coming software or hardware uh, companies that are are, – attending these conferences and and selling their wares. The the question is, and what's the challenge for some of our clients is, where do you place your bets? Someone may have developed the best technology for assessing pipeline leaks, 
the the company behind that technology may not be sound enough to to make it through the next two or three years. So where do you place your bets on the technology and the companies behind them as you're partnering and building your ecosystem um, to go forward? Well, I'll add to that, Kim, as well, which is that I think some of the technology you'll see in those conferences is futuristic and is pushing the edge, and that's wonderful. The other interesting thing, there's a lot of things that don't get displayed. So as you can imagine, it's a competitive industry. Sometimes what you're seeing out there is what companies were doing two or three years ago because they've actually advanced beyond what's actually in the public domain. Right. And, and Jeffrey, so where are some of the highest, I mean, we've had some discussion here, but where are some of the highest areas that you yeah, see? Show, cons- show me the money, right? Right. Well, yeah. I want to go buy some stock in it. <laughs> we yeah. all do. Well, the, uh, the, as, Nate, as Nate points out, the industry is quite risk averse and adopts things very slowly. So the stuff that's uh, at the um, what probably feels a little old or passe to other industries is still actually very fresh and novel in in oil and gas. The two that really stand out for me that I see um, really making uh, immediate impact uh, are cloud computing, and typified okay. by the you know the usual suspects, the big cloud computing services companies. Mm-hmm. Oil and gas has has been slow to adopt that technology because it's uh, huge data sets typically. Uh, the data is very proprietary and and uh, is a direct link to their uh, their balance sheet and their valuations, and so uh, cloud has not been the highest uh, technology um, uh, in terms of adoption in oil and gas. Uh, many of the other underlying solutions that will add real value to oil and gas are based on cloud computing. So, so to my mind, my first advice to most clients is if they're not and they do not have a cloud strategy and they're not thinking about cloud they stand a little chance to grab all of the future benefit potential that's going to come from digital. So it starts there. The second technology came from the game that I'd like to talk about comes from the gaming industry 15 years ago. <laughs> robotic process tools. Yeah. Uh, gamers are very used to this. You'd build a little bot and your bot would run around in your virtual gaming world and collect treasure and uh, pick up your health credits and uh, uh, grab your your weaponry and so forth. So to arm you for your next excursion into the digital digital world. Those exact same tools mm-hmm. are banned on uh, the big uh, social platforms because they're so efficient. And uh, so really? a technology, those robotic tools are also available in oil and gas to deploy to do sorts of oil and gas stuff. And it's a very mature technology. It offers huge value. And, uh, and the wave of, of interest in this is now very real and is a proven tech uh, oil and gas companies should be really uh, exploring very, very hard everything they can d- uh, do to extract value using these robot tools. The things that I think the millennials think about that are like for everyday living are a little different in the oil and gas sector from what I'm hearing from you guys. Mm-hmm. And you guys, um, Rachel and of course, Jeffrey, you guys wrote a book, yeah. Bits, Bites and Barrels, The Digital Transformation of Oil and Gas. And I want to get into that when we get back from break. And I also want to stay on the topic of oil and gas and technology but we do have to take a quick break you're listening to in the oil patch radio show and we'll be right back remember this name oil field experts to locate any part anytime for your automotive or oil field equipment needs oil field experts specialty is those hard to find oil field parts for your fleet maintenance needs and we've been providing those parts and accessories to keep your tools turning since 1965 from the auto repair shop to the pump jack call us for the right part right now Write down this number, Oil Field Experts, 210-471-1923. Again, that's 210-471-1923. And visit us on the web at theoilfieldexperts.com.
and we're back. You're listening to In the Oil Patch Radio Show. Our guests today in studio are Nate, Jeffrey, and Rachel with Deloitte. And you guys, you've had an interesting conversation about digitalization in the oil and gas industry. But between break, uh, Rachel, you brought up a good topic, which is do we really, let's define what digitalization and digital means in this space. So go ahead and explain to us what specifically that means. Well, it, it's it's interesting. And the reason I brought it up is because when I started my journey into innovation and digital, this is a question that I was asked a lot by um, clients, um, by people when I described what I did. And they said, well, what does that mean? And isn't digital just the uh, the buzzword like E was in, in the year 2000? So the way that we define digital, that Jeffrey and I talk about it in the book, is that it's it's kind of can have three different elements. You have to have data, analytics, and connectivity. So um, data is pretty clear. You've got to have some information. You've got to be doing something with that information, calculations on it, interpreting it, getting something relevant out of it, and you've got to be connected to other people or devices with that data. So it could be certainly an iPhone, a computer, a car, your Nintendo Wii, but it can also be things like, uh, not not uh, in our consumer lives, uh, a refrigerator or a doorbell or a remote control. So anything that's got that connectivity is... is uh, is going to be in that, it's going to be how we define that. And in the oil and gas world, that can be things like your remote sensors, um, if, if they're not air-gapped and they're connected to your to your technologies. Jeffrey, I want you to go into the book a little bit because I think one of the things that we all tend to m- miss, maybe just general public, is so we know that there's this big era of digitalization going on, but and, and when we've had a couple of other companies that Deloitte consults, Nate, um, Chevron for one, our guest at that time, Michelle, was talking about how they always had been collecting data. They didn't know how to utilize it in a way that created efficiency and really helped them on their bottom dollar and put them light years ahead of where they needed to go. So in your book, Jeffrey, which is uh, Bites, Bits, and Barrels, how in-depth are you going in this book about digitalization and specifically what can a reader get out of this book on oil and gas and the digitalization world that they're going through? So the, so the book is divided into five uh, chapters. And uh, so the first chapter actually is Rachel's described, uh, puts the language of, of digital forward, like what is it? Uh, the second chapter uh, goes into the handful of leading digital technologies that look like they will have the greatest impact on oil and gas. Oh. And that includes things like uh, analytics, artificial intelligence, uh, cloud computing, blockchain technologies, gamification, additive manufacturing, uh, and, and, uh, and, a, and a handful of others. The third chapter then goes into each segment of the value chain, exploration, production, pipelines, midstream, downstream, retailing, capital projects, turnarounds, service companies. What is the, the specific impact that digital will have on that, those segments of the industry and when will that impact actually show up? So where are we in the adoption curve of these different technologies so that uh, managers in those lines of business, those parts of the value chain, can anticipate when these digital technologies are likely to have uh, the, the, uh, an impact on their business models? And then the last two chapters of the book, um, fully 40% of the book, actually, in terms of words, is addressed to managers and boards of oil and gas companies. Because the biggest challenge with digital isn't so much the technology aspect of it, it's the adoption of it, management of change, risk mitigation, risk management, cyber, and how do you handle cyber issues? How do you organize your digital team so that you can be effective at figuring out which is the highest and best prospects to go after? How do you plug into the ecosystem? Uh, to take advantage of all of the tech startups and the, that are uh, developing digital innovations. 
Uh, so, so a big chunk of the book is actually aimed at people who are sitting there with a management job on, on their hands, trying to f- trying to figure this all out. Because right. that's the as I saw it, and Rachel and I, when we put the book together, we said, you know, the problem in oil and gas isn't that there's a shortage of innovation. This is an extremely innovative industry. The problem is where's the demand for that innovation and pulling that innovation into the into the industry. So the book's intent was to unlock demand for, for digital. And Nate, I want you to jump in here because you're actually with Deloitte. And my next question is going to be, so what are you seeing on the ground in Deloitte with that exact? I'm sure you guys are counseling or helping your clients understand when is the right time. Are there any drawbacks or is this what they're coming to Deloitte for and asking like, I read the book and I know I need this area, but I don't know when to pull the trigger. I don't know how to jump into it. And I certainly, there's too much at risk to just go off of my own belief that I know what I'm doing. We need consulting. We need experts in this area. So what are you seeing at at Deloitte at that level? Well, we're we're proud we serve our clients in a lot of different ways. Uh, And uh, we're lucky enough to be a 300,000 person global organization. So we've got a lot of capabilities, but there are a couple of typical ways in which we engage. Uh, one is for a client who's just getting started and looking to make the right investments, the right choices. And right. so Jeffrey, for instance, listed off a lot of different technologies, and even that was a, a short list compared to the full one. Oh, uh, uh, yeah. So We're Jeffrey just kind of probably just glossing well, there, over yeah, some, some, level. some analysts would say there's some 400 different and unique digital tools. So it, it can be com- very overwhelming to figure out where where, where, where do you, um, you know, put your bets. Usually there's some conversation around that, and that, that's just the technology side. The other piece of it is oil and gas companies, no matter how, how big they are, either the majors down to the independents are very complicated entities. Right. And so where do you invest? You could spend a lot of time, for instance, automating some of your finance processes. And if you've got deficiencies there, that can make a lot of sense. But a lot of money is usually, a lot more money is usually tried up in operations and supply chain. So making the choices of what technologies where and then with whom. The interesting thing is that in all cases, we find oil and gas companies and chemical companies not constrained with regards to dollars because these digital projects are fairly cheap compared to anything they're doing in the field. Oh, capital, yeah. It's mm-hmm. really a talent uh, issue. So for the very small number of very smart, very uh, very knowledgeable people we have with our company, how do we spend their time to get the most effect? That's the first question, a strategic one. How do we set this up for success? The second question we usually get into with clients is uh, how to get make this scale. And so we usually call this the random acts of digital uh, problem. Uh, so it's not hard to start doing digital. Uh, you have got anything like a productive culture, usually there are a couple of groups who are independent, do a couple of interesting things, and advertise that. The challenge about uh, that is making it more of an institutional capability. So if you've taken care of it for one, your one drilling pad somewhere in West Texas, how do we make that something that we expand across everything from the oil sands of Canada to an offshore project uh, outside of Singapore? Uh, and that's a challenge because oil and gas companies uh, are filled with people who are very knowledgeable and who mm-hmm. have a lot of hard-won multi-year experience. And so saying that we can transport a solution that was developed far away by different people to your particular problem uh, can be challenging. And so how do we lead our way through that? Yeah. A final way, of course, is we help companies execute. And if you're in the business of producing hydrocarbons or finding them or transporting them, you're not usually in the business of creating analytic solutions. That's a capability you need, but if you've got a lot to do in a short period of time, that's where we can help in terms of coming in adding some cap- uh, capabilities for a period of time, and those capabilities then go away to allow you to come back to operations. So okay. I'd like to think we can help a lot of different ways. No two oil and gas companies, rather we're up, mid, or down, are in any way alike. So each and every customer has got to be customized, a solution that fits you know, who they are and where their path is going and their leadership and their culture within their company. It's kind of mind-boggling you know, when I think about it like, 
the kind of scope of work that you guys are doing by each and every customer and looking at what they're doing and then trying to give them an actual solution has got to change every single time. I flip it along. I feel very lucky. I get to work on incredibly... So you never get bored. <laughs> I, 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 get to, I get paid to work on very, very interesting puzzles every day. When we return from break, I mean, we're going to get back on digitalization. You're listening to In the Old Patch Radio Show, and we'll be right back. Shale Oil & Gas Business Magazine provides services like print advertising and digital marketing. Our digital advertising services include website, email, radio, video, and social media. Shale also provides specialized web services from website management to search engine optimization and social media management. Visit our website, shalemag.com. Once again, that's shale, S-H-A-L-E, mag, M-A-G.com to learn more. Shale is your one-stop shop for growing your business. Pick up the phone today and call 210-240-7188. Again, 210-240-7188. Hi folks, Alvin Bailey here. Did you know Agreco is proud to sponsor In the Oil Patch Radio Show? Agreco has served Texas oil fields for over 10 years, supporting producers with temporary power to get their product to market. When utility power is not available, Agreco is your reliable alternative. They service everything from pump jacks with a single 200 kilowatt unit to massive gas processing facilities requiring 50 megawatts or more. Agreco is your dedicated engineering partner for diesel and natural gas generators, as well as battery power solutions. Call Agreco today at 1-800-AGRECO. That's 1-800-A-G-G-R-E-K-O. And we're back. You're listening to In the Oil Patch Radio Show. Our guest today is Nate, Jeffrey, and Rachel with Deloitte. And guys, we've been talking about everything digital in the oil and gas space, which is one of the areas that Deloitte really specializes in. It's an interesting topic to me just because there's so much to unpack in this topic, and it's a very complicated topic, but you guys somehow or another seem to make it so easy. Uh, Somehow or another, though, I don't believe it's probably easy. Rachel, let me start with you. Of just, We always talk about on the show how people in the oil and gas sector are are, are young students graduating, coming into uh, oil and gas. I don't think the perception typically is, is that oil and gas is really techie and all digital, but it is. It is right? what, what do you say about that? Like, what would you tell somebody if they're coming into looking at a career, you know, how do they embrace digitalization in oil and gas? And should they? Is this like where they should come if they want to get into that kind of career? Well, I think many people who are in oil and gas would say that it is a highly technical, highly innovative industry, uh, especially when you're looking at the applications of, of extraction and, 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 and downhole technologies. Um, on the digital front, it's a little bit different. And so what I would tell people, and this goes for the recent grad, but also folks who are mid, midway through their career and want to have a way of elevating uh, what they're doing is be curious. Uh, try to think about how you could do your work differently and be open to that. It's really very cultural, as Nate and Jeffrey were saying earlier. Um, You have to be willing to take risks, and that is not part of the culture typically in the oil and gas industry. Now, we're not talking about risks that are going to cause safety hazards, but be willing to try to do your work in a different way uh, that that may make you more efficient. So being curious is is the number one thing I would say. And, and, you know, some of the things that are shocking to me is when I've interviewed some other customers that are more in the service side, so they're not Mm -hmm. the upstream oil and gas or service companies that are servicing them. I didn't realize 
up till six months ago that in midstream pipelines for people to understand or you know really our, our listenership maybe doesn't quite understand what midstream is it's more of there's a different sector but that includes pipelines that even our regulatory agencies used to and still do go out for building a pipeline that they've got to go through different ranches and everything this takes surveyors and human beings going out there now there's technology that actually not needing that anymore they're not having to spend that time they've cut down the time of not from uh, weeks and months uh, or years it's down to weeks and months I and mean, days mm-hmm. the technology that's happening is going faster and faster and faster it's crazy jeffrey let's get back on your book bits bites and barrels the digital transformation of oil and gas so this is the starting point for somebody who really wants to understand where's the industry going what should they be looking at and their business model mm-hmm. and um, a roadmap to it you guys wanted to write the book because obviously there's so much out there to unpack and companies are struggling where to go. What advice would you give somebody that is a midstream company that is um, a smaller company wanting to try to attract a larger company? Is is the book going to help them to understand technology and where it's going? Uh, that's exactly its intent. So there are really three audiences for the book. Uh, the first audience are and principally aimed at business professionals in oil and gas who didn't uh, don't understand digital. And, and don't see where that's a lot. Of, that's a lot of <laughs> well, <laughs> a lot of people. It's, uh, theoretically, yeah, I, my estimate of worldwide is there's 15,000 professionals, English speaking professionals who might find this book of interest. Yeah. And, uh, and and they would be managers or senior managers, supervisors in oil and gas who, uh, you know, as we talked earlier, have to make choices around where to invest and how to change the business. And, and uh, so the book is really principally aimed at that group. The second group that could read the book and get value from it um, are the companies that um, make technology. Um, because if they don't understand the needs of the oil and gas industry, they can't get the technologies to fit properly. And, and so the, the digital industry, if you like, uh, misfires. It can't, can't explain how their tech uh, can make an impact for oil and gas. So, so the book also tries to unlock that puzzle for, for the uh, digital companies. And the third audience uh, for the book uh, is uh, groups that are ancillary to the industry but not d- b- deeply embedded in it. So that's financiers, regulators, and students, um, because they also have a, a, a thirst for understanding of how the industry is going to be impacted by digital. So those those are the audiences that, that I think could get the greatest benefit from the book. So, Nate, do you guys see a lot of companies coming forward that are saying, look, we've developed some technology that we believe can help the industry move forward? Is this a starting point for them? Does Deloitte want to see the latest technologies that are out there and, and connect them with a Chevron or a, a customer of y'all's that really is looking for something, but it's kind of like you don't. It's out there, but you don't know it's out there. Is does Deloitte have a technology area embedded in it too that is trying to connect the dots as well? Certainly, I, I think our, our fundamental mission is to help uh, companies and society be more efficient, more productive, safer. And so we're we're proud to be able to connect people to ideas from across the industry. But um, there's actually an assumption in how you were talking about that, Kim. Uh, in the past, we talked about disruption in the industry, for instance. Right. Sometimes this is sharing technologies from uh, one company to another. Sometimes this is sharing technologies across the same company. Uh, a lot of these companies are so large that uh, communications can be impaired and difficult. Most yep. definitely that occurs. I've, none of the companies that your listeners are working for, of course, but uh, some of the <laughs> other ones are sometimes a little uh, inefficient in their internal community. Um, the other possibility is a more disruptive one, which is redefinition of how relationships work. And so as an example, um, Almost every oil and gas company has a very important and powerful set of relationships with some of the oil-filled services providers. And so that raises questions. If you've got both an OFS company and a, uh, an upstream company working on some drilling pad, who owns the data that's coming off of there? 
And, oh, that's uh, a both, great point. Both can innovate on that data. Both can make very powerful, sometimes very profitable observations on that data. And so is it one, the other, or is it both? Uh, the other dynamic is that a lot of uh, new developments, new major ones, are not uh, single company developments, but are complicated joint ventures. Uh, in the States, uh, sometimes that can be simpler, but certainly uh, outside the U.S., almost all developments are some uh, collaboration between a national oil company or some other entity and uh, some, uh, some international development group. Uh, and sometimes multiple ones. And so that's another question of who owns that data, who owns those innovations. And the final one is that there's been uh, initiatives such as OSDU, the Open uh, the open Data Universe, uh, to share data across and saying, is it really important or differentiating for our observations within this space, or should everyone have the same geo data and be able to make the same observations on it and share it across because of how frequently this stuff moves? So it's really redefining how some of these industries work. The final uh, thing I'd say in there is when does a technology comp- a company, we usually say it's a technology company, which maybe spends all of its time service, servicing and putting things into the oil and gas sector, become an oil and gas company itself. Uh, where I, I actually, there's one uh, client we have out there that's termed itself, you know, uh, we, we are a technology company that happens to produce hydrocarbons, not that we're, so there's mm-hmm. a lot of different ways of looking at it. I very much enjoy when you guys come into studio and talk to us about what is happening in oil and gas and digitalization. This book also is an amazing book to read, Bits, Bites, and Barrels by Jeffrey Can and Rachel Goyden. You guys need to go get it. You can get it where, Jeffrey, Rachel? Oh, it's available uh, as a paperback if you want to purchase it from Amazon. In, in I've ones, got my copy. Thank ones, you. Ones, twos, and threes. Yes, yours is autographed. So, uh, thank you. Uh, ones, twos, and threes, you can get it from Amazon. or It's available in a, a hundreds of bookshops around the world, online book sites, I should say. Uh, in the audio, uh, it's also available as an ebook. obviously. I mean, there's it, be little value in, in pr- promoting a digital topic and not have a digital version. Of so course. The book is available on Kindle and other many other downloadable ebook formats. Uh, and finally, it was just released in August uh, as an audiobook on Audible. Uh, recorded Excellent. by a uh, professional um, a recording artist by the name of Paul Boucher, uh, uh, who uh, produced it with me, and and the book is now uh, on Audible, available around the world where Audible is heard. Uh, so that's uh, iTunes as well as uh, the Amazon and Audible platforms. Excellent. Well, I'd like to thank you guys for coming into studio today and talking to us. And of course, I look forward to having you guys back in here. I'm sure we will hear soon talking more digitalization. And of course, what is Deloitte doing to help the oil and gas sector as well? In the oil patch is where together we explore topics that affect us all in oil, gas, business, and in your community. Every week, your host, Kim Bellotto, will visit with the movers and shakers in this fast-paced industry. You'll hear from industry experts, elected officials, and many more right here on In the Oil Patch.